Welcome to the Silver Screen Guide Podcast. Join Corbin and Alan, along with guest hosts, as they bring their love for the cinema to discuss films from every genre and decade. Learn about the history of the film, little-known facts, and insightful explorations while they enjoy discussing your favorite film. The curtain is rising and your podcast is starting. So sit back, relax, and enjoy your guide to the silver screen. Welcome back, listeners, to the third and final installment in our Back to the Future movie review series. Today we are reviewing Back to the Future Part 3. This is your co-host, Corbin. And I'm Alan. So it uh, audiences didn't have to wait too long for this it's- one. That's true. Yeah, this one. Let's see. When was Back to the Future 2 released? Because I know Back to the Future 3 was released May 14th, 1990. So Back to the Future Part 2 was released November 22nd, 1989. Okay. So yeah, I think you said this last week. I think that's about six months or so. Yeah. So yeah, not very long from Part 2 to Part 3. No, and that's because they did shoot these movies simultaneously. Right. And they did not shoot necessarily back to back because they were shooting like i said part three some scenes of part three were shot during some scenes of part two because it was always envisioned as one film but of course it would have been way too long so they split it up into two sequels right i do know that we noted last week they wanted to do uh one giant three hour long epic but the studio was like um uh, no that's way too expensive (laughs) And so they split it into two movies. Uh, and so, yeah, luckily, though, yeah, audiences did not have to wait, you know, four or five more years to get the sequel to part two, which, by the way, we noted last week ended in a cliffhanger. It did end in a cliffhanger because it very much is a part two. It's part of a whole. It's not totally a self-contained film. Right. Which... We're going to get into it talking about part three because it's not necessarily a self-contained film either. Like I said, we'll get into it. But Mm -hmm. yeah, it did end in a cliffhanger, but at least audiences didn't have to wait very long, which is not always something you can say to be able to watch a trilogy and have it released within a five year span. That's not always very common. So, yeah, as we stated, parts two and three were shot back to back, uh, but they, the actors said that they wasn't really all that bad. However, when it came to the crew and most specifically editing, that was where, you know, uh, Bob Gale noted that it was kind of grueling was just because getting parts two and three edited and making sure that, you know, all of these things that they bring up in parts two and part three were consistent through both movies. I'm sure that would be tough to shoot for that long because most movies don't have a particularly long shooting schedule right? uh, because you have to have time for post-production and getting it all prepped for its theatrical release. But like we said, they basically shot two movies all at once, Um, which I guess is efficient. I mean, you get it, you're getting it all over with. So good for them for not putting it off. Like Alan said, another few years, but definitely would have been tough on them right i do know that they took 11 months to shoot both movies back to back but that also included i think it was like a one month hiatus when they finished uh with two and then started moving into three there was like a short break that they took Mm. but yeah pretty much back to back i'm guessing the budget is probably 
similar, maybe a little less than the second one, because there's not a lot of uh, visual effects like the previous movie had. Right, that's true. The most of the visual effects, um, I, I guess you could say number two had a lot of them, as we've noted. There are some here, as well as they are masked better, I think, than they are in two. They are also a little bit more subtle, but at the same time still is not, you know, used as much as part two was. So the budget for part three was $40 million. By today's standards, that's about normal. Um when it comes to a big blockbuster movie, but especially for 1990, it's about normal as well. $40 million for a budget. Not too bad. That's really not too bad. And of course, it was profitable at the box office, but oh, yeah. it wasn't as profitable as the previous two films. Right. So opening weekend, it got $23.7 million, which is okay for an opening weekend. Uh, domestically, in total, it got $88 million, four and $156 million. Worldwide for a total of 244 million. So, yeah, did really decent in the box office. Oh, yeah. I mean, with a budget of 40 million and grossing 244 million, it did absolutely great. But I got to say, I'm shocked it only grossed 88 million domestically, considering the previous films easily broke 100. And uh, this didn't even hit the 100 million mark domestically. I'm wondering if, because Sometimes cliffhangers really do get audiences coming back to see it. But like Bob Gale mentioned, the cliffhanger really soured a lot of people on part right. two. So they really didn't have to wait very long to see how it concluded. But I'm just left kind of wondering why this didn't do so well. Because, I mean, people really loved part one. People, I think, I mean, you look at the scores for part two and people love it today. Uh, it wasn't as critically well received, but it was still, you know, mostly positive. Right. Uh, I don't know. It, it just really surprises me. Yeah, it is surprisingly low when it comes to budget. However, the scores, depending on where you look, seem to be rather positive. Uh, so IMDb is at a 7.4, which is still good, but that's the lowest rated uh, Back to the Future movie that we have. Um, Metascore at a 55, which is very average. But Rotten Tomatoes has a critic score of 79%, which is certified fresh, and an audience score of 78%. And Letterboxd score with a 3.5. So and on average, they're above average. Um the Rotten Tomato score surprises me about how high it actually is. Um, but yeah, so it's kind of hard to say what critics really think about it when you look at the scores because Metascore looks like a 55, which if we're comparing it to Rotten Tomatoes, Metascore tends to be a bit more critical with its scoring, whereas Rotten Tomatoes is certified fresh. Yeah, that's a big difference because a 55 means it has mixed reviews. That is straight up mixed reviews. And part two should be noted, it had a 57, two right. points higher, still, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> still mixed reviews, but part two had a 65% approval rating from critics on Rotten Tomatoes, so it wasn't certified fresh, and that's much weaker, whereas, mm. yeah, I mean, that's pretty incredible for uh, part three to receive that high of a score. Um, it doesn't have as high of an audience score as part two, which had 85%. And, you know, 7.4 is a very respectable score uh, yeah, for a is. film. It's not up to, I believe the first film had like an 8.5 and the second yeah. one a 
So yeah, it's kind of all over the place. Uh, I mean, some people think it's better than part three. Some people think part two is better, but the, but absolutely everybody says uh, part one is the best. Oh yeah, absolutely. And everyone that I've talked to have always talked about, you know, back to the future, the first one, the original still being the best part two and part three. Yeah. They're pretty fine. They're pretty okay. Um, but it's one of those situations where part one, and this happens all the time where part, the first part of a trilogy always seems to stand mostly alone. And then the next two sequels rely so heavily on each other. This happened with star Wars. Uh, and it's, I guess Star Wars is actually a really good example of that the original trilogy, um, kind of, even though the first one is very much on its own, the second, the next two sequels relied heavily on each other. Now, Back to the Future does have a little bit more connective tissue because they did reuse the ending from the first one to continue into the second one. But when you when you come to an overall sense, it feels like part one is when we kind of mention this feels like more of its own standalone movie, whereas part two needs to lean on part three because of its ending. Yeah, it absolutely needs to lean on it and. We won't get into spoilers just yet, but I think that's nowhere more so prevalent than in the very ending, kind of the the closing sequences of part three. We'll we'll talk about that, but if you hadn't seen part two fairly recently, then I think you would find certain elements of part three to be very confusing. Right. Uh, Like I said, we'll we'll talk about it, but uh, one other thing to note is this also has the same cinema score as the previous one. Uh, they both have an A minus. Oh, okay, okay. And also, uh, I watched a special feature, and it gave me all the box office rankings for worldwide, so I jotted them down. Yeah. Um, but it did give me the total. So the series in total grossed um, nine hundred fifty-seven point five million, in which is nineteen ninety really numbers. That's really close to a billion in nineteen ninety numbers. Adjusted for inflation, that's well above a billion. Oh, yeah, which is incredible because this is a brand new type property within the past five years. Yeah. All three films came out within the trilogy was completed within five years and it grossed a billion dollars. That's crazy. And I know Robert Zemeckis said this enabled him to do whatever he wanted when it came to filmmaking and storytelling. He said, if I want to make a movie about that trash can over there, then the producers will be like, yeah, I don't understand it, but we trust you, Robert. You you go ahead. Here's all the money you need. Make your movie. <laughs> oh, and I, I believe it too, because uh, especially after, you know, the smash shit that was Back to the Future, um, that was already a risk in itself. I'm, su- I'm sure that he would be on the pedestal of, yeah, those are just directors you just, when they want to do something, they'll just do it and any studio will pick them up and, you know, allow them to do whatever they want to. Yeah, and we basically kind of saw that happen with M. Night Shyamalan after The Sixth Sense and it got right. all its Oscar nominations and he's like, okay, I'm going to do whatever I want. And then it didn't go very well for him. Right. <laughs> well, is it time to give the plot summary and get into spoilers? Sure. Okay. Yeah, listeners, if we if you haven't seen Back to the Future Part 3 and you don't want the film spoiled for you, then go ahead and click pause right now on the podcast and come back and click play after you've watched the movie and we'll be ready to talk about it. Just moments after Doc vanishes from the sky, Marty runs back to Doc from 1955 to get his help after receiving a note from the same Doc who's in 1885. However, against Doc's wishes from 1885, Marty feels he must go against that 
and take the DeLorean back to 1885 to save Doc after stumbling across his gravestone. So 1955, Doc and Marty repair the time machine and Marty blasts back to 1885. However, the moment he arrives back in 1885, the fuel line is struck with an arrow after being chased by some Indians, leaving the, uh, leaving the vehicle incapacitated. Doc and Marty meet up and devise a plan to get back to 1985, but their plans run into an obstacle when Doc instinctively saves Clara Clayton from plumbing over the cliff when her horses go stir-crazy. This event alters the future as Clara was supposed to go over that cliff, which gave it the nickname Clayton Cliff. Unfortunately, Doc has to explain to Clara that he is going to leave, as he is from the future, which obviously causes Clara to get very angry with him. To deal with his grief, he spends the night in the Hill Valley Bar, entertaining the locals with tales from the future. Marty enters the bar right as Doc downs the shot of whiskey and immediately passes out. Buford Tannen, who is in town at this, point, at this moment to kill Marty, however, Marty outsmarts Tannen and he blocks Tannen's shot from killing him with the door of a cast iron stove, which he learned from movies past. Doc and Marty hijack a train and begin pushing the DeLorean down the tracks to reach 88 miles an hour. Clara chases them down after having a change of heart when she overheard a local talking about Doc being so heartbroken. The DeLorean hits 88 miles an hour just as Doc saves Clara on the hoverboard and the train flies over the bridge. Back in 1985, Marty escapes the DeLorean just as a freight train obliterates the time machine, just like what Doc wanted. Marty meets up with Jennifer right, at, right where they left her in the last movie, and they head back to the wreck just as Doc and his own time machine made out of a train shows up and shows Marty his new family. Doc and Marty give one last farewell as Doc and family head into the unknown future as credits roll. And a song from ZZ Top. Yes, that is the big music group. And this one, I don't really think there's one in the second one. The first yeah, one was Huey Lewis in the News, and this is ZZ Top. But yep. they don't really do anything in the movie except just kind of swing their instruments and play their old-timey, uh, you know, uh, Oh My Darling type songs, which apparently, according yeah. to the trivia track, was like a brand new song back then. Gotcha, okay. I believe it. So, Alan, first I do want to ask, do you remember the first time you saw this movie? Yeah. So, in the last two podcasts, I've mentioned that uh, I watched this entire trilogy over a weekend when Mama's got on a business trip and it's just me, my dad, and my brother. So, I think that was the last time I watched it and that was Ooh. years ago. Ooh. I know I've seen part one the most and part two i had watched uh rather recently before this before we reviewed it but part three i never really ever returned to it for whatever reason uh i don't remember the last time i watched it up until now so my first encounter with back to the future part three was we were going on a family road trip and we would take a small television and we would hook it up through like the power in the van. <laughs> uh, yes, I've done the same thing. And we, it was a TV with a small TV with a VHS player built into it. So, um, we rented the tape from, I think it was like Hollywood video, probably maybe blockbuster. Mm -hmm. And my sister and I were ready to watch part three. It looked like a very fun Western adventure. I'm not sure if I had even seen part two at that age. Or maybe not even part one. I think this was like the most kid-friendly one. So my parents picked that up for us. But the VHS tape was so fuzzy. I don't know. I think that thing had been watched into oblivion. 
Yeah. Because as soon as we put it on, I couldn't even, we couldn't even see the picture very well. So, so fuzzy and the tracking wouldn't work, uh, wouldn't bring it into a cl clear picture. So I'm like, it's not, we can't watch it. So I didn't watch it until I honest to goodness, don't think I didn't see this until, uh, 2015. Really? Yeah. Because we watched my girlfriend and I watched part two on the day they went into the future in 2015, which was a lot of fun. And then I think like a couple months later, maybe we watched part three. All I remember is watching part three and being quite confused on a number of things that that happen in the movie. Yeah, part three is definitely the most different of the trilogy because the other two take place in relatively the same time outside of that one time when they actually go into the future in part two. Whereas part three takes place a hundred years before all of this in 1885 and is completely, almost completely taking place in this time setting. Oh yeah. And that is one thing I, I do feel this one feels disconnected from two, from one and two. Yeah. And even two, because there, this has very little to do with time travel. Time travel just occurs within the first act, maybe even like the right. first half of the first act. And then, yeah, it's a period piece Western and it recreates certain elements from the first one about how are they going to get back to the future using archaic technology. And um, that whole time travel thing really comes in towards the end of the film. But for the most part, this is kind of a funny Western love story with these two fish out of water and... Uh, Marty meets his ancestors and we get mm -hmm. to see Hill Valley during its construction. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's really meant to just be more of a fun Western in that way. Right. And that was why I think it is the most different is because it's really meant to be more of a Western than it is meant to be, you know, a fun adventure like we had seen before. And that's fine. And in some ways I do like the different way that they go about telling you know, the next chapter of Back to the Future, where beforehand it was kind of revolving all around the same events, whereas now we're taking things way outside of that and going somewhere that's very, very different than what we've gone before. So in some ways, I kind of like that change of pace where we're, you know, we're doing something very, very different. But at the same time, it is strange and kind of out of place when you compare it to the rest of the trilogy. And even inside the movie, it feels somewhat out of place after seeing parts one and two. And I noted that as well. After going 30 years into the future, it's a risky yet worthwhile endeavor to travel 100 years into the past. Yeah. And I like that they're keeping the setting not too far into the past where a lot of times people will travel to like the Middle Ages, which Doc mentions in this movie. Right. Which I'm sure people were kind of hoping maybe a part four would have them suiting up as knights or something and the DeLorean would be jousting something crazy <laughs> along those lines. Um, but I do like that this is very different because as you said, part two treads a lot of ground we've already been over. It's really right. interesting to kind of go over those scenarios, but uh, kind of raise the stakes. If you ruin those scenarios, then you ruin everything in the first film. Uh, but I do like going into the past and I think for the most part, this is an easy, digestible, fun adventure. 
Yeah, this is definitely also the most kid-friendly of the trilogy as well. Whereas the first one has, you know, that one scene with Lorraine and Biff in the car. The second one has pretty much the entire sequence of the alternate 1985. Mm -hmm. And this one has really nothing really too dark in it at all. Uh, It's very much the closest G-rated Back to the Future movie that we have the entire trilogy. And it's still fun, don't get me wrong, even though I've been rather negative so far, it is still a very fun movie to watch. And I I do still very much enjoy how different things are compared to the first two. And so it is kind of cool to see somewhat of a more modern take on a Western that hasn't, at this point in the 80s, hasn't really been done for a while because the, uh, the Western genre had kind of died out around this time. Yeah, the Western genre was pretty much done Except for, I believe, in two years in '92, Unforgiven, a western with Clint oh, yeah. Eastwood, did win That's Best right. Picture. But yeah, before that, westerns were westerns were like huge in the '50s. Yep. Uh, like when Marty travels into the '50s, that's when the genre would have been really big. And it's also uh, when Bob Gale and Bob Zemeckis were growing up. Westerns, I mean, were everywhere. John Wayne was huge, so they would have been very familiar with that genre, which. Uh, I know in the special features they mentioned they were really excited to make a Western and they found it to be loads of fun. And I think everybody had fun, even the like peripheral characters. Um, I think the most Western-y one we get is Buford Tannen, who is oh, yes. the ancestor of Biff. I think he does a, he always does such a fantastic job in all of these movies. Uh, even if we don't get as much screen time with him, even if he's like very important, but not as important, it seems like. Right. Yeah. In part two, he was like the one of the driving. Actually, no, he was the driving force for all of the events in that movie. And as cartoony as that movie was, it also would not survive without Biff Tannen because he kind of ran the whole movie. Whereas with this one, he is an antagonist and is an obstacle. But most of the movie spends its time mostly with Doc because in the last... So, I've noticed in the last couple of movies, the first one is mostly about George McFly. The second movie is really about Marty McFly, whereas this one is really mostly about Doc. And it's I kind of enjoy that we get to explore more of Doc's character and develop him more than the last two movies ever have in this Western film, which I'm sure Doc uh, even there is very fond of or might even be a fan of in 1955. It is very satisfying to see Doc, who has been a very comedic character, but there's never been much of an emotional connection with him. Uh, He's never had a lot of emotional involvement, whereas now he has found somebody which makes complete sense that he would find somebody that is a kindred spirit, is a soulmate to him. And it's ironic that this person was born 100 years ago. But it's really incredible because due to his time machine, they're able to fall in love and get married and have a family together. And uh, I think that's a pretty unique twist. I don't think most people were seeing this was going to be Doc's story and he was going to fall in love. And in some ways, we'll, we'll get into it here in just a bit, but it's a good thing that Marty goes back in time to save Doc's life so that Doc can have his happy ending because this movie sets it up like 
uh, Doc goes into the past just to be murdered, essentially. And that does kind of put a dark cloud over the beginning of the movie. So, of course, Marty has to go back in time to save him. Right. And it's also a neat callback as well to the first movie because one big one major detail in that one is Marty wanted Doc to stay alive. You wanted to warn him that in the future at this specific time, you are going to be killed. And Doc does take that warning and obviously he survived because we have two sequels. So it's kind of a nice callback to the first movie where Marty goes back to warn Doc again that he's going to die. But at the same time, though, it's like I mentioned in part two, the setup feels kind of weak. And again, I feel that this setup, once again, is still kind of weak because they just so happened to come across Doc's grave right outside the mine shaft where the DeLorean is being uh, is being hidden for almost 100 years. It feels like uh, it feels rather weak. These last two movies, I feel the setup has been lacking. Yeah, this is absolutely the weakest setup of them all. And I have serious issues with it. Yeah. The one thing that I guess helps me excuse it somewhat is when we do have the completion of the character arcs. I feel satisfied with those because Doc is using his emotions instead of rationality. Usually I'm opposed to the whole follow your heart instead of your head. But in this case... I mean, this is a kid's movie. (laughs) This You want to see the romance win out. And although it's not as clearly, I think, stated here, Marty's character arc is he's not afraid of being called a chicken. He doesn't have to take any more dares. He's not the hothead that we came to know in the first one where he kind of flies off the handle. Um, That's what kind of makes him a cool character, but it doesn't make him a very grown-up character. As we see in the second one, he really just doesn't think and that gets him fired and the whole Rolls Rolls Royce sequence was a dropped line set up in part two, which pays off in the third one. And we we know that is the key to him having a supposedly successful life. So I like that the character arcs feel satisfactory. Yeah, and I agree with you. They do wrap things up rather nicely. And I would even go as to say this one, I feel, is the most emotional of the trilogy, mostly because of Doc's character. And there's a conversation, you kind of mentioned this just a second ago. There's an interesting conversation in here in this movie when they get the DeLorean set up on the tracks for the first time. Doc is thinking, maybe I'll just stay and make a family with... uh, with Clara and Marty's the one who kind of talks some more sense into him. And it's kind of hard to say where the movie lands, whether or not to be very, um, be rather analytical in your life or to follow your feelings. It kind of feels like it's hitting a middle road between those two ideologies. Now it's not super deep, but it was an interesting conversation nonetheless, especially with these two characters to have on the most opposite ends from where they began. I guess one of my bigger questions with Doc choosing to stay in the past, but then we come to see he becomes just a time traveler with a giant train, which is awesome. Yeah. It it looks awesome. Yeah. And it was a real big thing they built. Uh, They built it around like a Jeep. So the Jeep could drive it around. Yeah. But it looks really good. I guess Mm -hmm. my question is, we begin in 1955 and Marty goes back into the past, but Doc stays in 1955 
And so I'm assuming that dock will continually progress into the future, just like he normally would. Whereas the dock in the past is, so are there two docks now? No, though, there's still one dock because <laughs> that same dock from 1955 would eventually go back into 1985. Or sorry, 19, 1885. It's the same dock. It's just oh, okay. a slightly different reality. Gotcha. And yeah. I will say that pretty much every question you could have about the series is answered on the, at least on the Blu-ray set. They had a really, I don't know if you checked it out, Alan, but they had a really great um, written Q&A. Um, oh no, I missed that. Okay, so what it is is people would people like have wrote written in their questions to Zemeckis and Gale, and they write back the answers, basically explaining everything. So gotcha. there's a ton of it on there. Um, there's also a really funny older featurette hosted by none other than a young Kirk Cameron. Really? Yes. Where that's a name you don't hear very often anymore. No, no, you don't. But this was like at the height of his young career. And he comes driving the DeLorean into the old West town and he like gets mail and people are like looking at him oddly and looking at the DeLorean Yeah. and he reads the mail. It's like voice actors, like, you know, reading the letters out loud and he's like reading it in his head. And then he answers the questions and it's, it's a lot of fun to watch. It's about 20 minutes. Um, I think it premiered yeah. on uh, whoever owned this, like CBS or something. Yeah. Um, but it's just funny because they're like, hey, where can I find a hoverboard? Like I heard in an interview, Zemeckis said they're they're real. Like how can I pick one up? And he's <laughs> like, well, I'm sorry to tell you, but they're not actually, actually real. And then it shows you like behind the scenes footage and you get to see some deleted scenes to kind of fill in some possible plot holes. Uh, gotcha. So if you've got the Blu-ray, I recommend checking it out. It's pretty funny. Yeah, I'll have to check that out. Now, was he in Family Ties? Um, Kirk Cameron? I have no idea. No, no, sorry. That was Growing Pains. Never mind. He was in Growing yes. Pains, not Family Ties. I know Michael J. Fox was in Family Ties, but I know if he was in that as well. It's not the case. Yeah. So in 85, Michael J. Fox was the young heartthrob. Five years later, we got the younger heartthrob, Kirk Cameron, yeah. on the scene to, to give us a lowdown about everything. But gotcha. I was pretty surprised at some of the questions, how well thought out they were. Um, they also describe what a time paradox is because Doc throws that word around like everybody knows what it is. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> in um, part two. And they they said like the what if uh, one of the Jennifers would when they fainted would have hit her head on the cement and died and would have erased both of them. And they said that's a time paradox. And they say there's this self preservation instinct of the space time continuum or destiny or divine intervention, what you will, right. which will uh, preserve time from like collapsing on itself and creating a paradox. Gotcha. Um, they did bring up one thing before we jump back into the third movie that I thought was an incredible question that I hadn't even thought of was the ultimate paradox is when Marty and Jennifer go into the future with Doc, that means that they should technically be erased from the future because they were, oh, really? they were removed from the past. So if they're removed from the 1985, then that means they never have the opportunity to get married and have any children. 
so and they admitted it gail and zemeckis were like yes technically they shouldn't exist in the future they said it allows for the possibility that they will return be they they will return to the past and then they will have this future um that that we see in the end of part three and the future from part two is a race and new one is created um we are supposed to assume the future is the one extrapolated from the likeliest situations you just left but i never thought of that before gotcha okay so the okay so time travel in the back to the future universe is very much that what that which is in the future has not yet been set therefore in the event that marty and jennifer go to the future technically they should not exist right because of that okay now i understand what they're getting at what the lore is so yeah i guess if you want some more back to the future lore it's definitely on the blu-ray have the <laughs> big q a because i didn't yeah the time period there are things in here that they bring up but don't explain and the one other the plot flaw that i found with this movie but they explain it pretty well is on doc's tombstone in the beginning we see uh, the tombstone is from his loving clara and I thought, right. how could Clara give Doc a tombstone if she died going down the canyon in the past? Well, right. they said in the first future that in the first, excuse me, in the first timeline that happened. But when Doc travels back to 1885, he does pick her up from the train station and they fall in love. But Doc is shot and dies two days later. And so she right. dedicates a tombstone to him. Marty goes back before she arrives at the train station, distracts Doc so Doc can never pick her up. But nevertheless, he still ends up saving her. But then Marty saves Doc's life, so he is never shot. So it's pretty easily cleared up that way. Um, I did find, actually, the ending train scene is super exciting. I love it. And I I think it's probably one of the most exciting scenes in the whole franchise. Uh, Clearly, it's kind of mimicking um, the ending scene of part one. But I got to say, I find this one to be more exciting. I personally find part one to be a bit more exciting, but that may also be because of my involvement in the film. Um, But I do remember when I was a kid, I remember this specifically when I was a kid, this final train scene was the thing that I thought was the best part about this whole trilogy. I thought it was great this ending when I was but a wee lad. And I still think it's great today, but I think personally uh, part one's ending has a bit more um, emotional weight to it, in my own opinion. Okay, so should I get into my biggest criticism for the whole movie? Yes, my, I want to hear it. My, I'm really curious. My biggest problem. So my biggest problem with this story is it feels wholly unnecessary. Doc's letter to Marty says, go back to 1985 and destroy the time machine because it's caused too much trouble. But Marty learns Doc dies in 1885 by Buford. Well, Marty doesn't want Doc to die, so he's going to bring him back to 1885. This doesn't matter. Doc is alive in 1955, ergo he'll be just fine once Marty returns to 1985. I get this as Doc's movie, and he has an awesome character arc by having a wife from the past, and they fulfill their jewels for a dream with their awesome train. It just sadly holds no consequences with Doc's death in the past, just as the previous two films have the highest of stakes. That's a really interesting point when you talk about stakes, because, yeah, the first two, they feel like they have some really heavy stakes to them. Like the first one, they have to get, you know, 
have to get it just right. And the timing has to be perfect in order for Marty to go back to the future, right? Part two, um, part two, you have the entire subplot of the sports almanac, which there towards the end when Marty is trying to grab it from Bith while he's driving down the road is rather suspenseful. So yeah, when it comes to part three, it feels like the stakes that we have here have already played out more than once. Um, and we know what's going to happen. They're going to still go back to the future. They're going to make it. There's no way they what that they won't. And so I think that's why I, I ended up finding this movie compared to the rest of the trilogy, not only different, but also not as impactful is because I feel like I've seen this before and I know where it's going to go. I, I absolutely agree with you. It's really hard to get behind this plot when Doc writes him a letter and says, don't come back for me and, you know, I'll, I'll be fine because it's just really hard for me to wrap my head around. If he's clearly alive in 1955, he'll be alive 30 years later unless, like you said, they go into the future and and everything occurs. The whole the whole like time loop thing and like if everything's like going to reoccur itself because of what we see in part two, we see two of everybody happening. It's just really hard for me to wrap my head around. And I guess it's just hard for me to uh, maybe this makes sense within the plot. Maybe I'm wrong, but it's just hard for me to get behind Doc dying in the past when he's alive in the present. Right. That's my, that's, that's my whole thing is it's like, fine, Doc, let's just call him Doc too, dies in the past, but he's alive in 1955. So if the whole sequence reoccurs, write, write him a letter, just like they like to do with each other um, because Marty wrote Doc a letter and now Doc wrote Marty a letter, <laughs> say land the DeLorean. Right. In 1955, when that when that sequence occurs again, and don't get struck by lightning, and you won't go to the past. Yes, <laughs> yes. There, this movie I feel has the weakest plot of the three, and or yeah, of the trilogy. This one I feel has the weakest plot because I feel it's it's not as I felt I feel thought out as the other two, where the other two feel like you know. There is time to it, and it's more played with in part two, but it's also something that they use in part one, have fun with, and say, well, what if this happened? In part two, it shows the dangers of this, and then here in part three, it feels like it's mostly just a character piece, um, again, when you compare it to the other two. So I think that's why I feel this one is also the weakest of the three is because of that reason alone. I feel like there could have been more, and even then, the first one... Uh, or no, even then, the first this third one doesn't really have too interesting of a background info, which isn't necessarily a critique of the film. But when you compare it to two and or one and two, where one had was almost it was amazing it even got made and did as well as it did. Part two, there's a lot of innovation in it when it comes to technology wise. Part three, while they still do some of the same things where they have you know two actors on the screen at one time and a little bit of CGI here and there it feels the most least impressive of the trilogy. Yeah. And, you know, I can appreciate that they don't go darker just because that's kind of where films were trending because the second one was darker 
And to me, it very much seems like they just wanted to make a very easy, simple kids film. And they wanted yeah. Marty to do the right thing and look out. Like you said, it's more of a character piece. It's more so talking about like character virtues and uh, good life lessons for younger audiences to learn. So in that capacity, I appreciate it. I'm just saying with my SSG goggles on, it just doesn't make any sense when Doc says, don't yeah. come back for me. And he's like, you know what? I can't let the Doc in this way. I got to go back for him. And it's just like, but who cares? I mean, it, yeah. it doesn't make any sense. One of my bigger critiques of this movie, and I this is the kind of a, a similar critique of the last one, is its pacing. Um, and I noted in part two that the pacing was kind of wonky because it starts off and things go really, really pretty quick up until he needs to, until Marty needs to get the sports almanac back from Biff and the last like 45 minutes or so. And then it just really just slows down until the end of the movie. This one, it's pacing is not as wonky, but it's still kind of all over the place because it starts off, you know, Marty is goes and it's the whole opening from the first, from the second or it's the whole ending from the second movie again as they did in the second one um but then after that opening happens and the credits roll the movie just slows down for like 15 minutes and explains a lot of things to kind of catch the audience back up to speed what happened in the second movie to get them to this point and all kinds of stuff and it just it just really slows down up until they until Marty finally goes back to 1885 there's just this whole scene where they just talk and spill exposition, which if you've already, if you watched the second one recently, it feels kind of like, okay, I know this already, let's get through it. And then when they get back into 1885, there are scenes that I feel are just kind of dragged out for way too long. And their progression from them getting to 1885 and leaving 1885 doesn't feel very drastic at all. So in a general sense, the pacing, in my opinion, is about on par with part two, where I don't feel that neither of them are paced very well. Whereas in part one, I felt part one was paced almost perfectly. I would say the third one is the worst paced, and the first one is the best paced. Um, and I don't have as much of an issue with the pacing in the second one because everything is happening so fast and furious. I have more so like we talked about, go back and listen to what we said, just issues of it's kind of like whiplash with jumping between time periods and trying not to undo things. And it all feels a little silly because it's all based around a sports almanac. And uh, once again, you're right. This one doesn't have the ticking clock scenario. Like the first one, there really is no time limit to when they go, all they need is the train. They just need to hijack a train and they can do that whenever the next train rolls around from what I understand. So I really do like the opening of this movie because I'm left scratching my head. How in the world is Marty going to get back to the future without the DeLorean? Ah, Doc hid the DeLorean in a cave. He liked to play in when he was a kid. And I thought, okay, that actually makes sense that, I mean, I think after 70 years, I don't even know how they could restore restore it. I, I, yeah, I have no idea what would happen to a car 70 years being stored underground. And just and sitting there. Hoping that same mine shaft doesn't you know, collapse any time. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, and I know some people are driving around very old vehicles, but 
I mean, they didn't just sit there right. for 70 years, as far as I know. Yeah, those have been at least been taken care of to some capacity. Right. The DeLorean had just been sitting there. I don't know. It's a kid's movie. You're supposed to not think about this stuff. Yeah. yeah. So <laughs> I like that. And I like when he goes into the past and he's kind of got his funky clothes on. And one thing I do love about all three movies is how all of these scenes kind of like fold back in on themselves, how like history yep. repeats itself. He goes to the saloon this time around and he has to deal with Biff and his or Buford and his bad guys. Um, but yeah, the second act is, I would say, boring and forgettable. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's the reason I really struggled to like get into this movie is uh, I, I do check out in the second act. And I think the reason is, is because they don't play up Doc's death enough, like the situation is going to happen in. Because when Buford comes with his little Derringer pistol and he's going to shoot Doc in the back, I didn't even think that was the uh, scenario where it happened. I yeah. don't think they really played that up enough. Like in the first movie, it's like they have to kiss at the Enchantment Under the Sea dance. They have a dance here and they're go he's going to die, but I'm not tracking with it. I'm not realizing the stakes are going to even occur. And Marty just throws a pie plate and stops it. Right. It's, it's also one of those things too where – so Doc is afraid of, you know, changing the future, which we know that at some, to some degree he already has because he um, starts a relationship with Clara. So when Marty goes back to 1885, they're all scared about Doc dying Monday at whatever time uh, to Buford. Whereas this confuses me because they know when Doc's going to die. So why don't they try to avoid that? And one can make the argument that, well, they don't want to screw up the timeline already, even though they, you know, already have. It's, it's, yeah, you're right. The stakes are not really well defined when it comes to Doc's character because we know he's going to die, but it feels like, okay, well, there, there's a solution here, isn't there? Um, that this timeline might be screwed up, yes, but I mean, it's already been screwed up already because of Doc's presence in 1885 where he dies. So, you know, it just feels like they weren't stated and weren't clearly defined. Yeah, and um, the other thing is that really confuses me and troubles me is the ending when Marty gets back to... 1985 and he picks up jennifer and they're they're driving his truck and then all of a sudden needles and his gang rolls up in their truck yep. and he's like and they're parked right outside the neighborhood that marty and jennifer may supposedly live in in 30 years and needles is like let's race and marty's like you know what um i don't when i get called chicken i don't have to prove anything so Needles goes, and if Marty would have done that, he would have smashed into the Rolls Royce, which would have forever uh, broken his hand and ruined his guitar career, which is why he's basically a loser in part two. Right. If you haven't seen part two, and Needles is barely mentioned in that, and the whole Rolls Royce thing is a dropped line, and you watch part three, you're going to be like, what is happening here? That's what I thought, at least. This feels so tacked on. I It's so confusing and out of left field. They should have figured out a way to set up Needles better in 1985. Uh, maybe yeah. in the first film or something, but it's a super late in the game addition. That just feels out of nowhere. Yeah, that scene, I can understand somebody kind of going along with it uh, for the explanation that it's Marty learning to you know, get over it when somebody calls him chicken. 
But yeah, you're still correct. It, the scene still feels kind of extra because of that one thing by itself. It's a number, it's a couple of different things where, yeah, he's getting over him being called chicken and he's not smashing into that Rolls Royce and ruining his entire, uh, his, his entire career. Yeah, you're right. It is rather tacked on if you don't take part two into consideration, which is another issue because if you don't take part two into consideration, which they try to, you know, give some explanation as to what happened uh, in this opening, you're going to be rather confused and left out because part two is very integral to part three. Now, once again, they do explain things, but that also causes an issue because uh, two issues, actually. For one, you need to explain all that, right? And as I've already said, the there is a lot of exposition spilling here in this opening. And then for the second part, because of its pacing, I feel that this movie was supposed to be part of part two, which we noted in part in the last podcast that, you know, these in this one, that these two are supposed to be one film. And I feel that's most evident in this one with its pacing because of that opening that's so slow and how weird the pacing is in this one and how kind of insignificant everyone, everything kind of feels. Had it been a part of part two, like it was supposed to, maybe this would have felt a bit more meaningful. I absolutely agree. And I really do wish there would have been a bit more foresight with these scripts because they wrote the first movie as a contained story and they didn't mm -hmm. even think they're going to get to make a sequel. So when they did make the sequel, they had to do some retconning to Marty's character in certain events. And so it doesn't feel completely cohesive because the movie, the trilogy begins and ends on the same day. Right. So the movie begins with Marty and uh, he wants the truck, but he doesn't get the truck. But then once he changes the future, he gets the truck. And then when he comes back, back to the alternate 1985, um, he's got the truck. And so he picks Jennifer up and then they have this race with needles. But <sighs> this really bothers me because... I'm I'm very confused because in the first movie, Marty, uh, I guess he since he doesn't have the truck, he never encounter has that encounter with needles in that scenario because we just see what happens. He just goes to see Doc um, that night, right? So I'm guessing this is a wholly new encounter because they because Marty's future seemingly has changed for the better by getting the truck and his family is much better off. It, it ruins his future because he smashes into the Rolls Royce, but he's able to rectify that situation as well. So everything's great for Marty's life and no problems. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> so, it's all Doc's, uh, it's all Doc's fault for making his life perfect. I just would have liked to have seen needles because Marty has like band tryouts, right? For the first one mm -hmm. needles, the guy is played by the lead of the red hot chili peppers. So I wish they would have had his band being like competing with Marty and he was, he was Marty's antagonist, just as Biff was George McFly's antagonist. Mm -hmm. That's, but that's not even touched upon in the first movie at all. That's just an afterthought tacked onto the third one, right. trying to create more symmetry. Um, that's probably the, my biggest thing that I, I really don't like about this movie. Yeah. I wonder, cause Biff is like, you know, the big bad of this entire trilogy. So I wonder if maybe moving away from Biff would have maybe helped some of this and maybe even worked needles in 
two, part two and part three, or maybe a mixture of Biff and Needles. I don't really know. But yeah, I would like to have seen more of Needles because he's only in two scenes in this entire trilogy. Um, and that being part two, <laughs> when he tries to, when he, when he convinces Marty to be a part of whatever, uh, whatever thing he is, whatever thing he's trying to be a part of that ruins, that fires Marty. And then in part three, of course, he's in, you know, the truck that almost smashes into Rolls Royce. So his character kind of feels rather insignificant. And that kind of comes with the issue of um, just how this movie tries to wrap everything up and bring in these things and then try to, you know, resolve them is sometimes some of these things they bring up, I uh, feel kind of weightless and they're resolved in kind of silly ways. This is, this is one of them needles uh, where it just feels like it's there and that's really all that it's meant to do. You know, one of my other disappointments is I feel like we are lacking in fun side characters because yeah. um, Biff and George McFly and Lorraine, um, they were all really big characters in the first and second movie. And of course, Doc, but in the third movie, we just get Mary Steenburgen as Clara and she's the only real big side character. Buford is very much relegated to the background Yep. And so is uh, Principal Strickland's great grandfather is like the marshal or sheriff or whatever of the town. Yep. And even Marty's family plays a very small, insignificant role. Um, they do reuse Leah Thompson as Marty's like great, great grandmother or something, which yep. I know a lot of people are very confused about. Uh, how could his... How how could his non-blood relative look like his mom? It's just don't worry about it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they, from what I understand, they really wanted to reuse Leah Thompson. And the old saying goes, men marry women that are similar to their mothers. So they just wanted to show the McFly men are attracted to similar women. It's not yep. that big of a deal for me. I'm just missing those characters uh, because they're like here, but they really don't have much to do. Yeah, you're right. The characters, most of the side characters in this movie uh, feel, once again, kind of weightless. They're there, but then there's kind of something uh, with Marty's ancestor, but it really isn't explored at all, which is weird because I feel like there's ample time to do that in this movie, but they, for whatever reason, don't. So yeah, the the side characters in this one uh, are rather weak. The mo the main focus is on Doc and Marty, and mostly Doc. Well, Alan, what is your rating and recommendation for Back to the Future Part Three? Back to the Future Part Three, and I, I think I mentioned this earlier, is I feel the weakest of the trilogy, um, and that seems the IMDb score seems to reflect that, and so does the meta score. Part Three feels like it's it's there, and I like what is there to some degree. I like that Doc's character is given a lot of development. I do really enjoy that. And I like that him and Marty swap places there at the end, and they have that conversation of intellect over emotion. However, the shadow of part two keeps this movie from being, I feel, best. What, we, what this movie could have been, I feel, is unfortunately taken away because of part two it needs to be a part of part two so badly that uh the movie comes out weak 
it feels the longest of the trilogy, which is weird because of its pacing. If is if this was supposed to be on part two, along with part two, where it's supposed to be that three hour long version of uh, what was supposed to be Back to the Future, then um, maybe this movie wouldn't have been nearly as uh, slow or as underdeveloped. I guess that's kind of the best way I can explain it. This movie just feels underdeveloped. The side characters are bleh. Uh, Clara is a new character, but I wish there was more to her because um, she's just delegated to love interest for Doc. All the wrap-ups are fine, but they all some of them also feel kind of you know tacked on. Um, either way, the end of the series, end of the Back to Future, left out on kind of an eh note. It's a fine movie, but it's definitely not the best. So at the end of the day, I'm going to probably give it, I don't know, 6 out of 10. But it's kind of hard for me to say if it is or is not a recommend. If we're going to watch parts 1 and 2, then go ahead and watch part 3. But if you're going to watch part 3 on its own, I can't really recommend it. Back to the Future Part 3 is a fun callback to old westerns with a bit of a modern twist. As a current day cowboy movie, it hits all the right notes with a wild west world and a great showdown. As a time travel movie, eh, well, that's not too integral to the plot, unfortunately. But the ending train sequence sending Marty back to the future may be the most exciting event of the entire trilogy. As a part three, it brings mostly satisfying, yet slightly unnecessary character conclusions to Marty and Jennifer, but for Doc's conclusion, it really shines. While it is my least favorite film of the trilogy, it's still a lot of fun, albeit not as interesting nor as exciting. Back to the Future Part 3 is an incredibly fun family film, and one I would honestly like to come back to more often since this is such a lighthearted time travel adventure with lovable characters. It receives 7 stars out of 10 with a mild recommend. And that's it. Uh, there's been like a TV show after this and some video games came from the first one. But yeah, pretty much after Back to the Future Part 3, that's really been all the Back to the Future has to offer. Uh, there really hasn't been Part 4, Part 5, you know, an entire franchise off of this. Just Parts 1, 2, and 3. Just that trilogy. Yeah, I did also hear they created a ride at that's Universal yes. Studios. Kirk Cameron at the very end of his little video, he says, don't worry, there's a ride being open right now or being built right now. And it, it's going to open uh, November 1990. Uh, just <laughs> trying to get hype for the ride. Uh, it was closed in 2007. But okay. if you own the Blu-ray, you can experience the ride in full. It's on disc three. I watched the oh, first few minutes and I wanted the ride. It was just these really boring opening little films that they associate with rides. So I technically haven't watched the whole ride yet, but I'm curious to see it since I never got the opportunity to experience it. But yeah, yeah Alan's right in 1991 to 1993, uh, um, you can pick up the entire animated series box set. I saw it, they're still making it. It's on Amazon. Really? Um, yeah. Um, I would like to pick it up. I I would want to. I would want to pick it up for like three bucks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm curious to watch it though, um, because the animation, like I said, looks fun, and it looks like they mix in some pretty unique stuff. So 
And it's all the same characters. I don't think they have the same voice actors, though. Yeah, I know different voice actors, but that's usually typical for a TV show off of yeah. a big franchise. Uh, it is cool because um, Christopher Lloyd and Thomas Wilson, who play Doc and Biff, respectively, did reprise the roles for the ride. Right. I did hear about this. Yeah. Um, and of course, there is no Back to the Future Part 4. Mm-hmm. I know you're supposed to never say never, but I'm going to say it. There is never going to be a Back to the Future Part 4. The only thing I could see we getting is uh, maybe a spinoff, maybe some kind of reimagining. As for a Part 4 that continues the events of Part 3, first of all, it's been a really long time, but mm-hmm. hey, Blade Runner 2049. Who's, That's true. That's who's true. to say? But I do have an actual quote from Zemeckis. He says, we have no plans or desires to make a part four. We think we've taken Doc and Marty through an odyssey that's rounded them both out as complete characters and which also suggests they'll both have fine futures. We've developed and executed almost every time travel idea that's ever interested us. And we feel that another Back to the Future would only get stale and hackneyed. And after all this time, we prefer to end the series on a high note. Furthermore, Zemeckis also said that there's always an edge to the odd number three, whereas there's more of a safe feeling with the even number of four. And I agree, nobody ever makes four films unless you're the Alien franchise, and we all know how Alien Resurrection ended. (laughs) Best not to talk about it. Right. But... (laughs) Um, and you know what? I really appreciate that. I really appreciate we're not getting a fourth film just cause, just cause everybody likes it. Because like they said, it would be stale and it would be a cash grab. And I don't want that. It, we would have a compromised story and it wouldn't be as good. Yeah, I agree. This is a franchise that I'm honestly kind of surprised hasn't gotten a part four or even a remake when we live in an age where that seems to be what happens, that's the thing that makes the most money in the box office is those remakes or sequels to pre-existing properties. So I am a little bit surprised that this one, no one's tried to redo Back to the Future. Um, I feel it's going to be inevitable in about 10, 20 years though, if uh, things continue like they have been. But I'm still kind of surprised that as of now, that this recording, nothing has come out that is a remake or even a sequel like Blade Runner has been um, to Back to the Future. And that might just be because it's still a little bit new. Um, but I don't know. Yeah, the film just had its 35th anniversary. Right. But I really don't. I think these three films are so iconic in mm-hmm. so many ways, they really are a part of our cultural zeitgeist that I don't think Universal wants to take the chance of sullying the Back to the Future name. And right. I mean, and ruining it. And then people not being excited or thinking about it. And it it just is not going to happen. Universal is not going to make a fourth film without Gale and Zemeckis. And they don't want to make a fourth film. So I don't see it happening. I really... Don't see it happening. Maybe I'll eat my words here in a few wor- in a few years, but personally, I hope we don't get anything. Somebody needs to be imaginative and create a brand new time travel movie if they want. Yeah. 
Well, listeners, thank you so much for joining us on our Back to the Future uh, movie reviews. That that felt like it went by quick reviewing those three movies. Yeah, it really did. And I think it's just because we're used to doing retrospectives that are much <laughs> longer than this. <laughs> yeah, we did so, just come off of Shyamalan. That's true, yeah. It's like 13 or 14 films. It was crazy. And we also have done Halloween, which was about 27 films or some. Yeah, that took us an entire enough. year to finish. <laughs> yeah. So it, it's kind of nicer to just do these uh, shorter reviews. Yep. But listeners, we want to know what you think. Um, is this your favorite Back to the Future film? Maybe for some people it is. Maybe they have some very fond childhood memories of it or they came to it later as an adult and they really clicked with uh, certain elements of it or the Western element of it. We're curious to know what you think. So go ahead and comment below if this is your favorite uh, film in the trilogy. Next week, it's my birthday pick. So yes, it is. Yeah. And uh, you get to hear the episode the day before my birthday. And Alan has no idea what I'm about I, to say. Yep, I have no idea. I'm I'm really curious. He told me right before the podcast because we were talking about it. And I was like, oh, yeah, what is that? Because we had to put it on the schedule. And he said, I'm going to save it. I'm going to wait. So, I, I, I don't even know what it is. All right. Here it is. For my birthday pick, I am choosing the 1933 King Kong. Oh, finally. I need an excuse to watch that. <laughs> now you have it. And now, listeners, you have a reason to watch it. And the reason I chose King Kong for my birthday pick, is, I'll go into it more in depth next week, but this was the movie that got me into cinema, that got me to love movies. I remember fond memories watching it for the first time when, yes, when I was five years old. Really? I remember watching this movie and... Watching King Kong made me want to become a movie director, made me want to become a storyteller. So that's a movie very, very near and dear to my heart. That's why I thought, you know what? There's no better time to re to do it than for my birthday pick. So I'm pretty excited to talk about it. I am too. I've seen pieces of this movie. That seems to be the case for most things we review if I haven't seen it all the way through. I've seen pieces. Um, I haven't seen it all the way through yet, though. So I know from what I've seen that I'm actually really excited to see it because of what they were even able to do back in 1933. So finally, now I have an excuse to actually watch it um, for real this time. Well, listeners, I'm definitely looking forward to discussing it with Alan next week and hearing what all of you think about it as well. So once again, thanks for joining us on our Back to the Future movie reviews. We want to know, we want to hear from you. So make sure to comment below. You can also uh, go to our official website, silverscreenguide.wordpress.com. Send us an email that way. And if you're on our silverscreenguide.podbean.com page, we also have all of the links to our social media and our website and um, all of our uh, retrospective uh, series for movies and TV shows are all nicely alphabetized on the right hand side of the page for you to find reviews we've literally done every genre at this point yep. uh this is not only the uh, science fiction genre our first time if you want some heavier science fiction then i recommend you check out our reviews for ghost in the shell yep. and if you want some lighter sci-fi fodder and even time travel as well then check out our men in black movie reviews 
Yep. And we still will stay within the sci-fi genre because our next retrospective right after Corbin's birthday pick is the Terminator series. Every single movie that has ever been <laughs> released since, what is it, 1985? Whatever the first one that came out. I don't know. Yeah, I guess you're right. We are going to travel back to the 80s. We are going to go back in time to our uh, all of the Terminator reviews, which I'm very excited for that as well. Yep. Because... I've seen them all except for the new one, and I have weird feelings about all of them. And I, I, the first, the first, the, well, the original trilogy, I think I've seen only each of them once, so I'm I'm not very familiar with the films. I think I'm with you on that. I think I've seen the first one twice, but I have only seen the everything else that I've watched of the Terminator series, which is I no, I haven't seen three. And I think that's it. Oh, and Dark Fate, of course, yet. Um, other than that, I've seen them all, but I think I've only seen them all once. So I'm curious. I hear number two, Judgment Day, is considered to be one of the best, act- if not the best, action movie of all time. Uh-huh, so yeah. I'm, curious about, I'm curious about that one, to watch it again, because it's been a while. Yeah, if my opinions hold that I currently hold right now of the Terminator films, I think I'm going to surprise a lot of people i might make some people frustrated or mad mm-hmm. they might think i'm a doofus with, <laughs> for, for holding these opinions who knows i'm going to approach it with my ssg goggles so maybe everything will turn around and i'll be right with the world yes i don't know we're going to see but alan thanks for joining me sure thing all right listeners we will see you next week with king kong Hey listeners, it's Corbin. Don't forget to check out the exciting links in the description below that will connect you with more great movie reviews for your listening pleasure and our YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter page. And of course, our official website where you can read great articles and sign up for our free weekly newsletter. Also, if you want exclusive bonus content such as extra movie reviews, movie commentaries, and our thoughts on the latest movie news and trailers, plus more, then check out our Patreon page. It's a great way to help keep this show free, and it gives you great content that's yours to keep. All of that and more is found in the description below. Don't forget to subscribe whether you're on YouTube, Apple, Google, or Stitcher, or your favorite podcast service. And while you're at it, please leave us a five-star review so other movie lovers can more easily find our podcast. We love talking about movies, and we love talking about them with you. So don't forget to share with your friends and family, and we'll see you next week, listeners. The Silver Screen Guide podcast is edited and produced by Alan and Corbin. Intro and outro music is created by Thomas Rankin. The thoughts and opinions herein expressed are those of the individual and do not necessarily represent those held by Silver Screen Guide. Silver Screen Guide is not affiliated with any company or individual involved with the creation of this movie or TV show. No portion of the podcast may be used without express written permission from Silver Screen Guide.